Since 1993, Janusz Kamitski has been Steven Spielberg's go-to cinematographer. It's a working relationship as storied as the director's long-running collaboration with composer John Williams. In their latest film, The Post, the duo turned the early 70s newsroom battle for the Pentagon Papers into a riveting thriller. Kamitski talks about shooting The Post and his creative shorthand with Spielberg on Crew Call. So what I love about this movie is that here you have a newspaper genre or, or drama. And, you know, sometimes one would think, oh, that's static. But you turned it into a thriller. You really did with the way that you followed the actors and the way you were, you, the way that they were, they were going, you kept up with the pace of their dialogue. Talk about that if you can, because that's what's so amazing about this movie. It's just I think so different from the newspaper dramas that have come before it. Right. I mean, somewhere that I read that, you know, Spielberg could turn a phone book into an interesting movie, you know? So this is not the exact uh, analogy, but, but as you stated, this could be potentially very stodgy um, and interesting uh, visual movie simply because of the nature of the story, right? But Stephen wanted to, to make this story accessible, not to just specific audience, but he wanted to make a relatively popular movie so people would, would understand and, 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 and embrace the issue that the movie brings for the audience, which is, as we know, uh, freedom of press, freedom of speech, and all that stuff that is slowly being uh, taken away from us. So, you know, Stephen is an amazing, amazing filmmaker. He always works uh, in stages through camera. He blacks the actors through camera. Through the years of working with him, um, essentially that aspect of his, of his job has not changed. Um, in the past, I've worked with some directors who are just really interested in, in the performance and the written words. At that point, I would, I would black the scenes and stage the camera. But with Steven, it's a very good collaboration between him and I. And as I said earlier, he blacks the scene through, through camera. So as much as I would like to take the credit for the camera moves, it's really his, his domain and his preference to work with the camera to the extent that he does and to, to make written words who which could possibly be just written words much more vital much more energized and and more interesting to look at you know? so what was your direction was it to was it to again keep it moving like they're walking and talking because there really was there really was this fast pace right. to it and naturally you know speaking about the nature of, of his and my relationship is that you know it is so successful and so long simply because we both really supported each other in terms of how we seeing the movie and what the intentions are and clearly from reading the the, the script was very clearly that the movie has to have a active pace simply because it is a, a, a story about will they publish what's going to happen if they publish and will they do what they do what they did in the movie so so it needed to be a, a almost suspenseful and 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 that's what the aim was in terms of you know having the freedom to move the camera 360 degree, following the, following the actors through through the uh, Washington Post floor for that specific reason, you know. You wanted to feel that you are entering a very vi vibrant uh, environment, which is the floor of the newspapers uh, 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 institution, you know. And the, 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 the journalists were very busy. It's always very active, exchange of ideas, exchange of information. Uh, uh, phone calls that they have to respond, and also that whole idea of we tracking a story. We, the journalists, we are the ones who bring you the news, 
hence the name newspaper, but also, you know, we are digging deep into uh, uh, the truth of the information we're getting. So, so it couldn't be a stodgy stage movie, you know, it had to have that, that kind of a, a vibrancy in terms of the actor's performance and also the camera that is free of, of, of being, being uh, restrained by, by, by lighting equipment within the frame and other elements that would prevent the director from, from, from being so active with the camera. And consequently, the lighting had to reflect that kind of approach as well, because you know, if I'm going to uh, have a scene that takes place all over the newspaper floor, newspaper's floor and the camera will follow the actors, naturally, there's really no place to hide the lights if you're working in an existing location. And we shot at the White Plains, um, we meaning the movie was um, filming at the White Plains at the, some kind of an, an office building that we've rented and we've adapted existing floor of our office building and we've built our, um, our Washington Post office. And the, reason for, for was, and the reason for that was very simple. Um, this was a relatively low budget movie. This was a very fast movie. There, was, there wasn't really time to build sets, but primarily I think we, we needed to make it in there simply because of the cost, you know. The, the blueprint of the floor already existed. We just came in with the art department and set dressers and, and a few constructions and we, we've adapted the floor to our needs. So was it one of the shortest production shoots you ever had with Steven? Yeah, I think this movie and Catch Me If You Can were rather fast pictures, you know. Uh, we have not changed as many locations on this one as we did on, on Catch Me If You Can, where we've probably moved every day twice on, in, on Catch Me If You Can. Here we, we, we probably made, you know, once a day we moved locations, but also we had a long period of time for about 15 days that we stayed in White, Plain, White Plains and we filmed at the Washington Post. So I'm gonna go back to lighting sure. for a second. What's really interesting is um, the restaurant scenes mm. are shot in shadows. There's, there's, there's some, it's like half light. They're very, the rest, the restaurant scenes. Correct. The brightest scenes, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is uh, Ben at uh, Bradley's home. Right. Excuse me, at Bradley's home where, um, you know, when they're all, when they're all together and they have the papers. Right, when they do and actually. They... And then, the, and then in the um, newsroom, it's a fluorescent type feel. Right. Like I see pictures of the LA Times, not dissing the competition, and it's like, I, I get the feeling of a, a semi-low overhang and kind of like this fluorescent locked feel. It really felt, talk about the lighting. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I really, you know, we always romanticize this whole aspect of journalism and how they work, but really it was a rather a dreadful environment. First of all, they work long hours. At that time they smoked, they drink coffee, they probably drank booze after work or maybe at work. I don't know about that, but definitely I know they smoke and they drink and they work in this rather dreadful lighting situation, which is, you know, fluorescent, low ceilings, fluorescent, and, and they were overworked and pale. The skin was very pale, almost pasty, almost like these people didn't necessarily look healthy, you know? Uh, there was certain uniform uh, that they, they all had. It's not to say there was uniform, but certain journalistic uh, 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 model that they followed. So they all had uh, button-up shirts, you know, pants and so forth. But the main thing is they, they the face were the faces were rather pale, so I wanted the light to reflect that, you know. So subsequently, we lit. And the nature of filming is that I had to light from the top. And normally, I don't light from the top because I don't find that light to be um, um, 
beneficial for actors simply because you end up having deep shadows. You know, if you have a light, uh, top light just creates deep shadows. It's not very, uh, not glamorous, but not pleasant for an eye. But if you put enough light and you fill out the entire space with bright light, that light eventually will reach the faces. And, and you can always supplement the light a little bit from the, from the ground floor. But the main reason was to, was to really create that environment of real, real, reality, you know. So that's why, you know, there was a clear choice in terms of pulling some of the color out and making the faces, you know, a little bit pasty to the point where, where I don't think sometimes, I, I actually think people didn't look as pleasant as I wished they looked if this was a different movie. For, but for this movie, it looked really good. Now, the restaurants, it was like a noir feel. Right. And and since I've shot in that office for 15 days, I couldn't wait to get away from it and go to a proper location where I can actually uh, experience a little bit more contrast and more shadows. And also the story, you know, everything that I do, I hope, is driven by the story. So if there's a need for of transparency at the office, then there's a little bit more need for shadows at the uh, locations where she met with with other um, uh, uh, people, with the other journalists. Who, who, who was that guy um, from New York Times, played by Michael Stolberg? Yeah, yeah I, for, I forgot his name in real, but he was a, he was a New York Times journalist, very, very savvy, very uh, 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 sarcastic. Abe Rosenthal. Abe Rosenthal, yeah. So when she meets Abe Rosenthal, naturally I wanted to create, first of all, reality again you don't go you you don't go to restaurants that are brightly lit particularly when you when you someone of her stature or her world so she would go to a very special fancy place fancy places usually have more moody more more emotional lighting i also took it to another level because i wanted to not just reflect the emotional uh, 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 lighting in as far as the restaurant but i wanted to tell the story so so with michael who was uh, who was you know, who was the competition there would need to be a little bit of a little bit of a a little bit of a mystery, you know, so, so it's a little bit more shadowy. And as the story progressed, by the time the other participant arrives, it's really dark because now the moment she's just learned, she learned very important information, so there's a bit of mystery. And the camera then pushes towards the phone as she, as she grabs the phone and calls, calls um, Ben, you know. So, so it was almost traditional film noir, suspense uh, uh, type of uh, filmmaking, you know. Uh, what I love in that scene with uh, with uh, Kay and Abe is uh, you, that's the turning point right. when she says in the story when she says to him, "I'll take the check." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when everything yeah. go, starts going in the post's yeah. favor. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Um, tell me about because um, I thought this was really interesting. The exterior crowd scenes. There was a protest. Reminded me a little bit about a little of Munich in that it had earth tone colors, but there was like a hint of red. Mm. One of them had a hint of red. Uh, one of the, I think one of the protesters. And it was like when, 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 Tom um, ben, is arriving. When, yeah, when, when Tom when, is arriving in the yeah. car and he's confronted by, by a crowd and he's not able to go through. It's a beautiful scene, mm. color wise and everything and the whole retro kind of 70s. Yeah, exactly. Tell me about that and well, tell me about the use of color in that scene. You know, originally when I did this scene, and, and a lot of the color was achieved, you know, through, through color grading. And, and originally when I did the dailies, I went a little bit more saturated with, with, with greens and, and reds because it, it, I wanted to feel that 
that ectachrome uh, quality of the film. And ectachrome was a film uh, produced in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but very popular in, in the 70s among the, among the newsmen, cameramen. So it had that very saturation, saturated feel. And then I realized it just felt really, really fake. It felt too colorful. So I started pulling some of the color out to the extent where it started looking too black and white, and that was too much. So then I've, re I've re reintroduced a little bit of color, so it had that, you know, a little bit of a patina of what the 70s may feel like to us, the audience, not necessarily what the uh, actual documentary footage from the 70s would look like, you know. The red was always a bit of a, you know, metaphor there because of the, because of the, what, it's bloody papers, right? It's about the war. It's about um, uh, 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 reality of sending the guys to die for a cause that was really no, for the cause that was um, a wrong cause, you know. Now the camera, for I, the camera you used during production, the cameras? We've shot with American-made Panavision, which I think is the best piece of equipment still. Um, uh, we've used 35 millimeter negative. We've used lenses from the 70s, because I, I, I don't like the contemporary lenses. They're just too sharp. They have different uh, color reproduction and flare reproduction. So you didn't shoot digital? No, 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 we haven't shot. The only picture Steve and I we've shot digitally was, um, uh, was uh, Big Friendly Giant, simply because of the extent, extent of, the, uh, of the visual effects uh, demanded that we do um, digitally, simply because it's a bit cheaper. And so tell me about that. Tell me about you guys sticking to, to, to film over, over digital. What's, what's your philosophy well, on I that? Well, I think we've made, mo oh, Stephen always made movies with, with 35 millimeter cameras. So have I. Uh, I my experience as a digital uh, uh, cameraman is very limited. And we just think, why, 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 why go somewhere else if, if this is so good and serve us so well? And frankly, it's, it's disappearing uh, medium, you know, I mean, few more years, few more years, few more years, it will be gone. Yes, there is a great um, re 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 I don't know, reassurance, recurrence. Re 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 There's a great recurrence of, of uh, productions that go into film. But realistically, there are, there's a great recurrence of, of people using film. But the reality is that most of the movies these days, particularly European movies, are shot digitally. And, and I would say 40, 50% of American productions are shot digitally. Now, while color correction is a completely separate process Correct. that's done in post, are you able to play with colors on oh, your playback? Yeah, of course. After? Yeah, yeah. Because what I do, I have a, I have a, a colorist with me uh, on the production, and, and the film gets developed, the, 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 the negative gets scanned, and then next morning I sit in with the colorist on the movie set, uh, he comes and works with me on the movie set, and we set the color for the dailies, and that's when he, he sends the dailies to, to the editorial, yeah. So tell me, let, I want to go back to, um, I want to talk more about uh, your shorthand with Steven. Mm -hmm. Tell me about, he, he, found, he found your work on the Diane Keaton Correct. Lifetime film, Wildflower. Correct, Wildflower. Can you, can you answer what, was, what struck him about your work, and then how have you, what, what, what has your shorthand been over all these years? Because it's, it's a wonderful, long-standing mm. relationship. Yeah, not very 
uh, I mean, you know, in the past when the directors uh, were much more productive under under the uh, studio contract, those relationships were quite common because you know we I'm, I'm, we're sticking with each other because we're making movies on a regular basis, right? In this case, it's probably different. I would stick with you know I would wait for him to make a movie, but you know he's very productive, so we make movie after movie after movie. I would say you know. Once a year we make a movie, maybe once every year and a half, you know, and sometimes we make two movies, one after another. But the point is, you know, the story here is that when I did Diane Keaton's movie, I think it was 1991 or two, I, I don't really remember. It was a television movie, it was rather fast schedule, and he liked the results. Automatically he liked what he's seen, him meaning Steven, and he, and Steven knows the reality of film product or TV production, and he knew that the cinematographer on television production is always, you know, limited by time, by budget, and has to be really, really fast in order to provide fast and good in order to provide uh, uh, great images. That has completely changed these days with, with with television cinematographers. Television cinematographers are superior. I would I would say there's no really difference between movie cinematographer or television cinematographer. In fact, um, uh, those two fields. Uh, are interwoven very often you would get a really great uh, movie cinematographer doing television pilot or whatever so so that that's 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 not the reality now but in 1992 tv was still rather not infantile medium in terms of uh, visuals but the visuals were not as important so he did see diane's picture he liked the metaphors that i've created through lighting through composition the use of lenses you know the color uh, uh, playing with color playing with the sharpness of the image playing with the with the uh, wider angle lenses you know and so forth and he was emotionally moved by by that particular movie when i met with steven i was extremely um charmed and i wasn't really intimidated because i really didn't understand the consequence of that consequences of that meeting knowing what i know right now i'll be terrified to meet with him but then you know i was a young guy i was a filmmaker i've done several movies low budget movies prior to that i've shot stuff for roger corman's company i've shot some television i've shot some independent movies you know i had a sense that you know that i was on my way to become successful cinematographer there it's really interesting because there are two things i was always very clear I will make it in Hollywood and I will fail miserably in my personal life. So, so far it's working really good, you know. <laughs> I'm very successful in my professional career and miserable in my personal life, just miserable. I mean, just the example of, of you know, what you not should do. But I have enough, you know, uh, 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 what do you call, um, enough knowledge about life, enough um, contemplative personality to realize, you know, you can only laugh about it or that's how it is. And, and I really love what I do. So to some degree, because I love my work, perhaps I contributed to, to, to neglecting my private life. So going back to St Steven, you know, I've always knew I'm going to succeed. In fact, my first dream was about making a movie for Universal as a cinematographer. And in fact, the first picture I made was Cool as Ice with Vanilla Ice for, uni for Universal. So Steven liked the, 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 the quality of the images and he offered me a television movie for his company a television movie called Class of 61, which is a picture uh, made by Gregory Hablet, a friend of mine, a, a very good movie and television director. The movie takes place in 1861. The story is about West, Side, uh, West, uh, West Point cadets on the brink of the uh, uh, Civil War. It's a story of friends, classmates fighting each other. Through the production, through the course of the movie, 
I was told that Stephen is looking at the dailies very carefully. And once we finished the picture, he asked me to do Schindler's List for him. And of course, you know, I was extremely honored and, and, and loved the whole idea. Who wouldn't? And then we started working on Schindler's List a year later, simply because he had to still finish. He was doing Jurassic Park. So Schindler's List was subsequent movie after Jurassic Park. And I was doing Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So it was just, you know, yes, you got a job. Um, it's funny because I got a job with Spielberg and I was talking to my agent, listen, I got a job with Spielberg. This is like having an ace in your hand, you know, I, mean, I should be getting offers. Ah, uh, nobody believes you. Nobody believes you because I was just, a, you know, yet another cameraman, unknown man, an unknown cameraman who got a job from Spielberg. But yet, you know, it was hard for people to comprehend that he would pick someone relatively unknown to do such a monumental story because people knew that that particular movie, people who needed to know, knew that this is going to be uh, an important film for Steven and, and most likely important film for, for whoever going to, whoever's going to be the cinematographer. So of all the first films to start working on, Schindler's List, a black and white movie. Now, I, I know having sp spoken to the DP who shot uh, George Clooney's movie. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Tom... Tom, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, Tom, what's his name? Uh, Bob, uh, Bob, uh, Robert, uh, yes, Bob, yeah. And, and um, he, he was telling me, we didn't shoot that movie in black and white. We shot it in color and then changed it in the DI Correct. to black and white. And that was better because if we were to shoot in black and white, then a lot of shadow, there, there would be a lot of dark parts and everything. Now, that was made probably, I don't know, Almost a decade mm -hmm. after, after uh, you know, after right. Schindler's. Did you literally shoot in black and white, right. or were you shooting right. in color back? We shot, we shot in black and white. And he, the, this fellow, uh, I think was, uh, what's his name, Robert? Ellswood. Ellswood, yeah. And Ellswood was right. Uh, black and white negative is much more contrasty. And for that particular story, you didn't want a heavy contrast. You wanted to be a slightly lower contrast. So, so that choice was probably the right choice or most likely the right choice. We shot on 35 millimeter negative. And um, how, how did that go at the time? Well, it was, it, it, there were some problems with the negative inherited with the negative simply because the negative itself consists of silver highlights. And when the film was going to regate, there was a little bit of electro electromagnetic energy uh, released as the film was going to regate, so we would get, would have this little um, a burst of light in, in the negative. So we figured out, okay, well, we shoot first 100 feet without exposing the negative to the scene, and then after that, we go and, and we can use our negative again. So protecting protecting ourselves from, from the first 100 feet possibly being slightly damaged. Um, you know, it was fantastic because I've never shot black and white feature. I mean, I was trained uh, uh, with black and white uh, negative in film school, but you know, not because that was the that was the uh, training f uh, process. It's because it was cheaper, right? But you know, I learned about. It. I, I read here and there. I've learned about the filters. I've done some tests, you know, and and I realized really quickly why certain style has been so prevailing in 1930s American cinema, you know, the idea of, you know, creating sense of three-dimensional sense on the screen, which is essentially two-dimensional uh, uh, um, two medium, was, was achieved, the, the, the three-dimensional sense was achieved through lighting. So there's this classical Hollywood lighting, the backlight, the key light, you know, the field light, and you create, you put slash of light on the wall, simply because you want the audience to feel like they are in, in three-dimensional space, you know. 
later on, the, the whole philosophy about lighting changed and movies became a little bit more naturalistic looking, even the black and white ones, you know. But, but it's definitely a slightly different lighting style than you would do for color, simply because color gives you three-dimensional sense through color separation. Since there's no color in black and white, you have to create that through, through lighting. It was a little bit tricky to learn. It was a little bit tricky to learn the sensitivity of the film, because I think the, 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 the emulsion at that point was 200 ASA, and I was using heavy red filters to enhance the color of the skin. Red filter will, will, will make the skin slightly more paper-like. And I was looking for that whiteness of the skin. And, and, and deeper shadows and, and not gray tones. That was not my aim, except the exteriors. Your exteriors were so bleak and, and, and so sad that that, those, that grayness was, was appropriate. But, but every time I had a chance to, to do so-called uh, studio lighting, you know, I would, I would use the filters and I would use slightly more um, contrast within the scene to, to tell the story. Um, but essentially, yeah, that was, that was my, my um, my big break, you know, I would say, you know, but then of course, after that, people would say, well, okay, you should call her. Oh, for God's sake. You know what I mean? <laughs> now, um, going from shooting on a, uh, like, uh, you know, like a real, you know, an actual, an actual set like Schindler's List, like The Post, to something like Ready Player One. Mm. Tell me about that, because all of a sudden you're dealing, I'm, I'm, gonna take a guess right. it's got to be shot all on green oh screen. yeah well not not all of it but but i would say 70 percent of the movie 80 percent of them let's say that let's say that 60 percent of the movie is is a motion capture with uh, with cgi uh, uh, sets created by by ilm the other 40 percent is live photography and and within that about 10%, 15% movie set. So 25% was shot on location. And, you know, it was very liberating to go to go on location. I'm a guy that likes to... I'm not necessarily into green screen. I can do it. I'm not necessarily into motion motion capture. I can do it, you know. But I like life, life, life stuff. I like when the camera's rolling, when the grips are moving the equipment, when the light is being moved, you know. You know I like the traditional way of making movies. And, and, and I'm not really... A person who's who's interested in 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 fantasy movies, you know, I'll do anything that Steven does. But my my favorite movies are Munich, is Bridge of Spies, is the Saving Private Ryan, Catch Me If You Can. All those movies that we've done, even Minority Report, which is relatively uh, uh, fantasy, and AI, which I think was probably the most uh, fantasy-driven movie, but but it's still so reality-based. You know, there were there was nothing artificial about that movie, in my opinion. But I like that physical aspect. Of, of practical locations or sets, but just, uh, you know, I like making movies that way. But how do you deal with that challenge in Ready Player One? Is everything, well, is every, is everything storyboard? Yes, naturally, yes. Like of, from, from sure. start to finish on a, sure, on yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a yes, VFX it's very, film like I mean, the, the technology, the, you know, how those movies are being made is just, just uh, mind-blowing to the point where you almost have full, full animation presented to you before you make the movie. And there's a reason for that. Uh, uh, it costs money. It's good to know what you're doing. Plus, they've built they've building the sets into into uh, um, into the <laughs> into the cameras that the, that the operators operators operate. So they know. So the actors, although they operate in in completely artificial set, but but the operator and the director know the space, and there are partial sets created, not authentic sets, but but sets created in the computer. 
So you have a sense of what the v before you even shoot a frame. Definitely, you have a uh, sense of what the, you, what the VFX me, is sure, going to sure, be. Sure, sure, of course. And I have to know that because a lot of the stuff that I was I was doing um, was consulting what the what the final visuals are, which means creating a certain blueprint uh, lighting wise and color wise for the for the movie that 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 is being followed. But also when I was doing scenes that 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 were live scenes. Often those scenes were incorporated or intercutted with with the fantasy world. So there's an element of of creating visual coherency and consistency with what's happening on the on the um, motion capture stage. But fortunately, the movie is rather clearly divided into real world and into the uh, fantasy world. Fantasy world being you know, the, the the moment where they put the goggles on and they they're able to go and and become the characters they wanted to be and play the video game. Um, and the reality is obviously reality when they mounting on the uh, mounting the putting on the equipment. Uh, there's a bit of a, a drama between uh, between the characters. So that's all reality shot on sets or shot on location. The bottom line is I was bored for 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 for, for many many days doing the motion capture. But fortunately, the way we had this set up is that the, we had a motion capture set and a live photography set. So as I was lighting the live photography, Stephen would go on with the operator and do the motion capture thing, you know? So sometimes we would wait for one hour for them to finish. Then they would come in to me, we would shoot our scenes, live photography, and they would go, go back to to motion capture as I was relighting, you know? But sometimes it would wait, you know, but naturally, you know, just accept that it is 60% motion capture and, and you know, and you do a little bit more scouting during during that time, you know, you do a little bit more of uh, organizational stuff, preparational stuff. Um, yeah, but it's it's, it's an amazing move, amazing medium for a director, because you're still making a movie. You, you're moving the camera. You have sets built into the computer, so you know where you're going. If your imagination allows you to to move the camera the way Steven's imagination works, the camera will will do magical stuff, and you have full control. It's it's like making a play, and you still have actors. You still are working with actors. The physical aspect of of actors' performances is captured there, and it's essential for the characters. You know, so it's fun for the directors. It's not so much fun for a cinematographer. What's your prep work like when he has two films a year, when he's got two productions where he go, jumps from one to the other? I mean, what's your space like? Do you say, hey, listen, I need two or three weeks to prep? Well, or usually or you get a, a bit more. And a half. You usually get usually the minimum minimum I would say on, on on a simple movie like this one. Simple meaning you know it's not a complicated location driven movie. It's rather um, a, 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 a rather easy movie to make. I had a prep prep, prep for a, for eight weeks only, but on a movie like War of the Worlds, which was very complicated, or Indiana Jones, you're going to 12, 14 weeks of preparation, and mind you, that's very fast because we work very fast. I know my, my colleagues, you know, on a movie like Indiana Jones, they would get, you know, 30 weeks of prep, you know. And what does that entail for you? Scouting locations, metering? They're always always what I say to, to, to justify, why do you need eight weeks for such a simple movie? I say, you buying my time for the movie. Maybe I could prep this movie physically in, in, in five, six weeks. But you mind, you're buying my time, you're buying my thinking time, you're buying my, 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 my thinking process, which is for that eight weeks, I'm fully focused on what I'm doing. I may not be actually in the office at all, but it's constantly happening in my mind. I start to think of the movie, I start to think of reality of it. I do my own research. I, I look at the world around me and, and based on that, I will create some kind of a 
very loose visual representation of of what this what this movie will look like you know and you think you know constantly about about the movie you know which is kind of liberating because preparation often is not just you sit for eight hours and you think you look at the script and you think and you analyze every single line of the script because you're forced to think about it it's so much instinctual and inspirational from outside sources uh, there's so much inspirational there are so many ideas come from outside uh, the movie set sources you know and i'm inspired by by world around me I, I could be you know reading a newspaper and you you know I, and i pick the things that are essential for this movie i will, I will use the analogy of buying a new car let's say you're buying a new 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 nissan car and you want that car and all of a sudden you see all these people driving those cars so your attention is so focused on that particular car same with this my entire attention is focused on 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 on, on the post you know what is the process of making newspaper who are the people you read an article about Ben Bradley. I met Ben. All of a sudden, you think, okay, I can see why Tom is playing this guy, why he's got this hair, why he's walking a bit different. So all that luxury that I have by having the eight weeks on rather simple movie is being uh, employed towards um, developing ideas. And then you've got the physical aspect. You have to make yourself available to, in that eight weeks, at any point, to go and scout location. Let's go to White Plains. Well, you're in Manhattan. That's hour and a half. Come back. That's two hours. You know, so. You know, so preparation consists of coming up with ideas, forming the ideas, plan to how to achieve the ideas, definitely analyzing the script and going through the script and thinking in terms of, you know, the quality of life, the color palette. Is there any way I can to put a little bit of panache? Panache is usually a bit of rain, some smog, maybe a little flares on the lens. What are the lenses I'm going to use? And then the physical, logical aspect of, of of production. So we do have a couple of sets in that movie. Dan, Dan Bradley's house was a set built at the Steiner studio. Um, Kay Graham house was also the set. So that has to be prelit. That has to be uh, supervised. So, you know, there's there's a lot of um, abs preparation to, to make a movie and, 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 and governing employees, governing people uh, and communicating your ideas so they can they can prepare the location according to to what my ideas are in terms of what the movie should look like. You know? And you shot at the Grey Lady. You shot at the New York Times. No, we did not shoot at the New York Times. We shot uh, we shot in Manhattan, but 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 we we took a building that resembled New York Times, but it was not New York Times. Even the exterior. Even the exterior. Yeah, it was a building. I think it's some kind of a mechanical um, school. Um, that has very similar facade to New York Times, the old New York Times, of course. Yeah. And then, how does Stephen shoot? Is he does he rehearse? Does he do things fast? Uh, does does he is he a man of minimum takes? You know, he knows what he's got and he and he moves on. So it's fast, and he definitely knows what he's got. And I think one of the reasons he's he's he we are able to to make those movies so fast because this movie came out really fast is that. He's very decisive in terms of the coverage. He will, when, when we seldom use two cameras. He will use the chunk of the uh, um, dialogue and he will film only that specific chunk for specific uh, coverage. Um, in terms of coverage and amount of takes, that really varies from, from subject matter to, to subject matter, you know. Um, he definitely has very clear idea what the scene is going to 
to be like and how to block the scene. Although in this, this particular film, although in this particular movie, because of the um, complexity of the of the performance and amount of the actors who had significant uh, lines and who played significant part in the performance, we did a little bit more takes than normally. But then there will be scenes where we go after two three takes and we we'll walk away. But you know, movies pri prior to prior to um, Lincoln, we've made two three takes and would move on. You know, sometimes he would do one take. You know, we seldom did four or five takes. And then gradually, as as the movies became much more about about less of a panache and much more about not performance because it's always about performance, but about the nuances of 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 actors being able to reflect his desire in terms of the text, he, he would start with more takes, you know. Um, and I think the movies became slightly more serious as well. You know, we do, you know, we go from Bridge of Spies to, to Lincoln to, you know, to, um, to this one with some interruptions like Ready Player One. Um, but, you know, he's definitely ev not evolving, but, but doing things that are slightly more um, not important, it's the wrong word, uh, teams that are more mature in terms of um, the audience, you know. I think he, he means Stephen, he, he, the underdog thing is still very present in his life, but the idea of, of, of the need of ent entertain the, the audience is, is lesser and lesser. And then we make Ready Player One, you know, which, which is that, that, that duality of, of, of Steven Spielberg. He's, we're making Schindler's List and simultaneously as we're making Schindler's List, he's having a satellite conversation uh, about Jurassic Park, finishing Jurassic Park too, you know. I mean, the, the world of dinosaurs and, and atrocities committed by Nazis, it's right next to each other, but yet he's able to separate those things and, and be this, this man who, that he is. You know, I, mean, I think if there's, you know, and we had a conversation about it just recently. You know, all the success, all the all the things. You know, he says the only reason I want a success is so I can make movies I want to make. It's the, it's not the money, it's not the fame. And same here. You know, I'm obviously this is two different uh, uh, economical uh, 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 capacities. But I make movies because I love making movies. I was working for Roger Corman, and I was making six hundred dollars a week, you know, working 15, 16 hours, I was the happiest dog in the world. I, I was just saying, man, I can do this the rest of the life. As long as someone can pay, pay my rent, because you couldn't pay rent for that. <laughs> as long as somebody can pay my rent, I'd be very happy to work 15 hours a day. And, and my, wish, uh, my wish came true. I am still working 15 hours a day, and I'm very happy to be working uh, on a movie set, you know. But, you know, in terms of the, the, the in terms of the, decisiveness he's one of the most decisive people period you know i think uh, directors need to be decisive decisive simply because um there's so many questions being asked you and you have to have the answers and cannot be in uh, i don't know blah blah i don't know because i don't know means nothing you know you want the sweater red or you want a green uh, i don't know well i can't make two sweaters what do you want red or green okay i go for green so that's how it works. You have to you have to be able to make the decisions. And if you're not decisive, you will go behind the schedule. You will you will be um, a filmmaker who's not decisive. You know. Um, so yeah. So the, the way we work, he rehearses occasionally. Some movies earlier, we would rehearse with second team, particularly movies that that are driven by action. 
we would have second team and we would, we would use the second team, which means, you know, a stand in for the for the actor and the actor would walk the set according to Steven's uh, 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 suggestions or, or demands. We would block the scene with the camera and often the camera was a very intricate part of the storytelling because, you know, there were certain cues that come out, go in certain cue at certain direction, and and he was so interested in the camera being the being the storyteller, not just the actors, but the camera being the storyteller. As the time progressed, the actors' performance. As the time progressed, the camera was not essential as a storyteller. Although in this movie you would think the camera is so important, and it is. But if you think of if you think of Lincoln, you know. M- big wide shots with very small delicate cranes in so you're watching Daniel Lewis being Lincoln and the camera just pushes in very gently towards an actor because that's the movie right in this movie it's the as you said earlier it's a very vibrant or maybe I said that but it's a it's a world of journalism so it had to be much more active and also potentially you don't want to make a movie that's very static very um, boring to some degree you know yeah excellent Thank you so much. Okay, good. Thank you. Crew call. Fantastic.